what is interesting is now we're seeing the prevention principle coming up in shipbuilding cases. Now, I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that really 99% of all construction contracts that we see contain quite sophisticated extension of time provisions. And so the prevention principle is very rarely engaged. I think the construction industry is well on top of it. Yeah. What was surprising to me is that in an industry which isn't too far away from traditional construction, some of these things that get built in the shipyards in Korea and China are effectively floating oil refineries or LNG plants. And they're, they're construction projects through and through. In fact, some of them are, are done on EPC turnkey basis using principles from onshore projects. But pure shipbuilding is different, I think. It's not something that I specialise in particularly, but uh, I do more of the offshore construction when it's a construction contract rather than a pure shipbuilding contract. I see. It's interesting to see the commercial court judges getting under the skin of the prevention principle. I think that that's often an interesting way of of re-examining these things that as construction lawyers we take for granted. Yeah, absolutely. The shipbuilding industry has, has grown up with these international forms of contract that are based on sale of goods type contracts. And I think at the outset, when you're dealing with these sorts of vessels, people would say, oh, well, I want this type of ship. You, you build it. It's almost, you know, off the peg type thing. We'll make a few minor adjustments to the design, but you build it within uh, 180 days and I'll take delivery of it. And if you don't finish it within that time, then I can just cancel the whole lot of it and you'll just sell it on to the next person. And that's the way it's grown up. But particularly in the oil and gas industry, now these these drilling rigs, platforms, they are so sophisticated and the employers have become so involved in the construction processes that you now see that the forms of contract that are in place are based on that haven't been significantly amended as the culture shifts towards a more construction type environment. You have far more opportunities for employers to interfere and to prevent progress on, on the site. So now you have employers teams going around the shipyard inspecting the vessel requiring tests at random times changing the focus of of the construction team all of these things aren't foreseen by the standard form shipbuilding contracts because they assume that the contractor can ignore completely what the employer is saying and just get on with the construction of the vessel so what the particularly the the yards in korea in china have found is that they've Try to roll over backwards to accommodate the wishes of the employer because they want more work and they want to thrive in an international community. But they haven't insisted on a change in the nature of the risk and the obligations under the contract. So they've turned around and said, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I haven't delivered the vessel on time and you've got a right to cancel. But you did all these things that made it impossible for me to deliver this vessel on time. And the employers are turning around and saying, well, Act of prevention, that doesn't mean anything for a shipbuilding contract. It's got no application as far as we're concerned. We've got a contract which clearly defines all of the risks. And if it's not in there, you don't get an extension of time. And we can cancel the vessel, even if we have prevented you. And the case that really put the cat amongst the pigeons was Adyard and um, SD Marine Services, a case which was a really interesting case. You had a construction team on one side and a more commercial team on the other side in terms of barristers arguing about it. And it was definitely believed at the time that the prevention principle had no application to these contracts. But here you had Justice Hamblin, as he then was, stepping in and saying, no, prevention principle is a principle that cuts across all sorts of contracts. And also the prevention principle in terms of a construction 
context. It builds on the Al Hussein and Eaton sort of uh, concept, you can't take advantage of your own wrong. And that that is a principle that pervades every contract that you can potentially enter into. So what was interesting there was that he was saying, yes, absolutely, it potentially applies. But in the event, he went on to say, but I'm going to construe this particular contract in a way uh, that means it doesn't have an application in this case. So you've got this authority, high court authority, that says, yes, it's there as a potential threat with time at large and all the rest of it, but I'm not actually applying it because I'm going to interpret the contract in a particular way that means that actually everything that we're dealing with is covered by the express terms of the contract. And that's led us on this merry journey through the jurisprudence where you have this absolute fear of the prevention principle and the effect of time being at large being balanced against the, the desire for judges to say, I don't want this to happen because I think it's an uncommercial outcome, but it's something that we've inherited from multiplex. It's, it's, it's inherited from the, um, what you might call onshore construction industry. But on the other hand, I'm going to have to do something weird with the, these odd contracts that we've got in order to try to avoid the application of that principle. And, and as yet, none of these commercial cases that, that are dealing with the shipbuilding case are challenging this concept of time at large. They're not looking into it and saying, hang on a second, this is all complete utter nonsense. They just read Jackson in multiplex and say, well, these are the principles and I've got to deal with those. But it looks like my only way of dealing with it, because I don't like the underlying principle and its effects, the only way I can deal with it is by taking a, a new interpretation of the express terms of the contract to try to make sure that it, I, I find it's a whole and complete assessment of the risk between the parties, proper extension of time provision, all the rest of it. So you've got Zhuzhan which is the one that used to be, until just a few weeks ago, used to be the only one that really got into this. And, and this we were, as construction lawyers, we found a bit strange because, in effect, he reads the SAJ, the Shipbuilders Association of Japan, I think, I think it is their standard form. And he, he reads what is a very, uh, I find a very difficult form of contract to get my head around. And he finds that there are a sort of three-part extension of time sort of mechanism that he finds has to, uh, are basically all encompassing and he reaches a sort of awkward conclusion that in effect the parties have considered all the risks and they've allocated the risks appropriately and there's no need to look into it uh, beyond that and, and in those circumstances the prevention principle doesn't really apply so he was saying well okay there are permissible delays there are non-permissible delays and there are various other types of delays spread within the contract those are his three grounds it reads very awkwardly to me with respect to, to the judge. It just seems like a contrived way to try and avoid the impact of this prevention principle. And, but what came out a couple of weeks ago was the case of uh, Zhang Zhu, which deals with the same contract, the SAJ form, but this time avoids that awkwardness that Mr. Justice Leggett had in that case by going into the it's clause uh, 8.1, uh, which has always been thought of as a force majeure clause that talks about, I've uh, got it got it here, so, that, so the clause itself talks about war, blockade, revolution, insurrection, mobilization, civil commotions. Now, th this clause was interpreted to, by Legat to be a, uh, a clause that just deals with force majeure provisions. But within it, there is this statement that says, and I'll, I'll, I'll read uh, the, I mean, it's such a long list. I love these old 
shipbuilding contracts, but acts of God or the public en enemy, terrorism, plague, other epidemics, quarantines, prolonged failure or restriction of electric current from an outside source, freight embargoes, earthquakes, tidal waves, typhoons, hurricanes, storms, or other causes beyond the control of the seller or of its subcontractors. So you sit there and the, the traditional interpretation, the interpretation Legat says, well, you, you interpret that together with the list that goes before, and it's talking about other causes like that beyond the control of the seller. But in this case, the judge is saying, no, actually, to avoid the prevention principle, I'm going to ignore all of that, and I'm going to take the words or other causes beyond the control of the seller or its subcontractors and say that applies to any act of prevention. So, so suddenly, out of nowhere, we've got a force majeure provision that has always been thought of as a force majeure provision to be an all-encompassing extension of time mechanism. Now, the judge then goes on in this case to say, well, actually, that being the case, you didn't end up giving notice of these acts of prevention on time, so therefore you don't get your extension of time anyway. So although you end up getting this extremely wide interpretation, it's, it's of no benefit to the shipbuilder. But really interesting to see yet another attempt to try and deal with what we felt were the inadequacies of Zhuzhen and to interpret this force majeure provision in such a wide way that you, in effect, produce a typical construction contract type EOT mechanism through the back door. So yet again, what we have in the shipbuilding industry is something that looks very awkward on the face of it. It provides a solution, but none of the people that are drafting these standard forms of contract are motivated to try to do anything about it because currently the judges are just bending over backwards to try and interpret it to avoid the prevention principle. Yeah, I mean, is there any suggestion that these cases are going to get appealed? Yeah. Is there any prospect that the problems that we're having are going to get addressed by the Supreme Court? Maybe it's, it's just a matter of interpretation. So these aren't things that the court is very, very interested in, the Supreme Court, that is. Mm. Um, but it seems to me that, you know, for all the reasons we've said, getting the most Supreme Court in the land to actually think about what this principle is all about and whether there's another way in which you might interpret these contracts and there's an, maybe another solution to the whole problem of, employers causing delay to contractors and liquidated damages yep. is there another yep. way through is it possible to imply an extension of time clause uh, without losing uh, or reasonable making time reason you know completion within a reasonable time whilst maintaining liquidated damages is that is that something that it's worthy of consideration and thought i think so i, I think, think that's so. exactly the right the right way to to look at it actually is that a lot of the problems are caused by this fear of time being at large and the whole mechanism is is thrown away but why can't it simply be that you are you go all the way back to um trollope and curls and say well actually all that master of the rolls denning was saying in the uh, supreme court was that uh, sorry he, he actually gave judgment master rolls in the court of appeal that was then approved by the house of lords sorry i've got that a bit bit wrong there all he was saying was that you don't get liquidated damages for the period um, of delay caused by the act of prevention, which seems very sensible, not time at large generally, just for, for that period. So why can't you step in and, and simply say, actually, that is, as a common law approach, that is 
the way we deal with it. You say, well, you've, you've caused an act of prevention. You've got an extension of time mechanism here. It's an implied term that you can't prevent someone. And the impact of that is you say, well, you cannot claim liquidated damages for the period that you've prevented. So that's just classic assessment of uh, you know, causation principles. What, what critical delay have you caused or what would have happened but for the um, act of prevention? Not whole liquidated damages regime removed. And I think that's a far more simple way of, of affecting a change. And I think if that was the approach and that debate was had within the shipbuilding industry, they'd be latching onto that instead of contriving to interpret the contracts in this way. They'd be able to say, absolutely no, this contract does not deal with this properly, applying normal principles of construction rather than building construction, but the principles of, of interpreting the contract. Um, there is a gap in these contracts that, that should be addressed by the drafters, but prevention principle applies and they do get their extension of time for the period of delay caused. And that would drive the improvement of these standard forms of contract in the shipbuilding industry, I think. And I get into several debates around this with people who work exclusively in the shipbuilding industry. Uh, an arbitrator in a recent case that I argued this in, in front of has taken issue with some of the things that I've said in talks like this and, and believes that should go, go in a different way. But we will come back to the same point, which is there has to be something that drives a change to these standard forms in the shipbuilding industry, because currently there's too much debate and not enough certainty. And that's what the party sees. They need certainty about the terms of the contract they enter into. So as to whether or not we're going to get to the Supreme Court on something like this, well, part of the difficulty is that very often parties, whoever wants to argue it, it may be the contractor, it may be the uh, employer, they want time at large. <laughs> so because they know that there's only a few days that have been caused by the employer, for example, if it's the contractor. So they want the whole thing set aside so that they don't, in effect, get the penalty for their own delays. Uh, sometimes it's, it, it can be, well, in fact, it's, it's typically that, that's the way, the way around it is. So it's a, it would be quite rare, I think, for a contractor to be arguing the prevention principle with a, a maybe primary case, we want extension, we want time at large. But very often, the primary case might be, we're not trying to push you so far that time is at large. We accept that we only get a limited extension of time. So if you proceed on that basis and the other party agrees, then this issue about time at large will never be engaged in the Supreme Court. So it's a difficult one. I think that it's one of these points where I hope that talks like this, us all sort of thinking about it independently, having not, you know, challenging the status quo, will ultimately create a culture where we're saying, well, you know, my Lord, that there's a debate about time at large. Oh, yes, I do know about the debate about time at large. Is this the case where I have to deal with this? Coulson obviously believes not in, in Midland, but perhaps, perhaps it will come up in the future with an eager young judge who wants to stamp their mark. Watch out. Well, we I, I, I won't name and shame any members of Chambers who, uh, who, who might be in this camp, but yeah. And, and they'd have to be suitably brave to do so because the uh, inevitable backlash would be extreme. But I, I mean, I think what's interesting is none of this stuff is debated in, at length by counsel on either side either. And I assume that's why, you know, the judges aren't dealing with it as well, because, they you know, the, the, it's not being argued before them in any way, which would allow them to do so or to engage on it. One side issue is, of course, the jurisprudence and the older cases talk about the way that you interpret extension of time clauses. 
And what you've just described is the commercial court looking at these clauses and taking quite a broad commercial common sense approach to what these clauses actually mean and therefore avoid the consequences of the prevention principle. But when you go back into the authorities about the construction cases, there's quite a lot of debate about how extension of time clauses are for the benefit of the employer to avoid the prevention principle, and therefore they should be interpreted contra-preferentum effectively. And therefore, again, that's driven this very careful drafting of the extension of time clauses to protect, protect the upgrade damages. But you've got the commercial court adopting a slightly different approach, perhaps, which is, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll bend and twist it so that LDs don't disappear. So it may be a concept of just passage of time and commercial reality, you know, penalty clauses, uh, you know, looked upon, the great damages clauses looked upon suspiciously, uh, you know, 100 years ago, now seen as a very sensible commercial mechanism. I think that does have some role to play as well in the debate, I think. I think that's a really excellent point because, uh, yeah, in, in North Midland, again, uh, Lord Justice Coulson was re-emphasising exactly that point, that, that extension of time mechanisms are there for the benefit of the employer. And I, when I took um, my tribunal to, to that section, they thought that this was a typo in the shipbuilding context. So, no, well, it can't be for the, you know, it's for the benefit of the contractor because they get, they're able to get an extension of time because without it, they wouldn't get their extension of time. And you have to, you, you're just dealing with a completely different culture that you're trying to say, no, no, you have to kind of get to grips with it. You have to see why it's come about in the first place. In fact, going through all the history that we've got, we've skirted over uh, today, and but you're doing it in a context where you know if if I had I had this it was a wonderful case where where we could present all of this sort of background and discuss it but the uh, w- and we conceded that time at large wasn't something that should happen we just said it could all be managed within the terms of the contract and that'd be fine which I thought was a good which was which suited my client for this particular case but might not suit another client in different circumstances but it took a long time to. First of all, persuade myself from a commercial set that this was the way to go, and then to try and get it across to three members of, of the panel, only one of which was a construction lawyer by background, the other two were, were commercial, and they were they're just very suspicious of it. They just, they just want to interpret the contract so that it sets the four corners of the agreement, nothing outside, don't want to imply anything, just want to give effect to the written agreement. And it, it's hard to break through that. But... You know, Legat in Zhujan, in Adyard, I've just forgotten the uh, judge's name in Adyard, and now in Jingsu, we have this we have this acceptance that prevention principle applies. So there's no, it's just, and, and with the help of North Midland that says it works as an implied term. So we, we're now at the, the cusp where I think there has been now a cultural shift in the shipbuilding industry where they accept it applies it's now all a matter of you know people turning around at the judgment like Jing Su now and then saying, how can you start interpreting a force majeure provision as something that provides for any act of prevention? And, and that, I think, may be the starting point of a change in culture and attitudes, greater challenge. Whether or not Jing Su is going to be uh, appealed, I do not know, actually. It was only handed down, judgment was handed down yeah 30th of or the date of the hearing was the 30th of april this year so you know with still early days we'll see whether that gets escalated 
Tom, thank you so much. Listen, um, I'm very conscious that Lucinda's been sitting there quietly listening. So Lucinda is, is, a, is a relatively junior associate in my group and so comes with a slightly different perspective than our, us uh, more seasoned practitioners where we're, we're, we're steeped in the orthodoxy of this. COVID bearded. Um, yeah, exactly. So Lucinda, um, did, you, did you want to ask a question? I think if you've got anything to add, it would be really helpful, I think, because how does, it, how does this sound to you? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The fact that obviously on the face of it, this seems like it's a kind of principle to, to ensure fairness. But then when compared against the, the current views uh, on liquidated damages and freedom of contract, it in, in some respects kind of seems to go against it. So I was certainly interested, uh, interested to hear Tom's views on, uh, you know, what, what the Supreme Court might do in the future. And I was also wondering, Tom, you mentioned about causation. How would that work if you were applying the Bull test, sorry, in relation to concurrent delay? Surely one would kind of overrule the other, so you'd never, you'd never end up finding what the, the cause was. Oh, that, that second one is an absolutely fantastic one. I'll get, get, get that. The, fir- the first one is I, I find it difficult now to anticipate where the Supreme Court is going to go, mostly because it's actually their Brexit decisions that have surprised me the, the most, because if you had um, Sumption still there, I'm pretty sure that Sumption has been the driving force behind this clarification of issues like, uh, you know, penalty clauses, uh, you know, interpretation of contracts, re-establishing black letter uh, law. But now that he's he's gone, and then you see the the, the issue of what, what was obviously extremely difficult. I'm no constitutional lawyer, but everybody I was speaking to, even members of the judiciary, about the uh, the idea of the prorogation was that you just say, well, actually, we don't have a constitution that applies over the whole of the that sort of sits above everything and provides a groundwork. And my personal view is that where you have a, a gap. In the law, you don't have to fill that. Judges don't have to fill it. If if it's something that isn't legislated for, isn't part of the, the law, then you don't step in. You say, well, yeah, this isn't great. Yes, I'm, I, it offends all sorts of principles of democracy. But there is no such thing as rule of law that allows you to impose your philosophical beliefs at any one time as a Supreme Court on the rest of the nation. That's the job of politics. Politics deals with that. They're the legislature. They've got supreme authority. But they've, they've been willing to, and are able to, obviously, step in and say, no, we are going to apply rule of law now, and we're going to start saying that. Now, once you start taking on that responsibility as the Supreme Court, I think you then have to start making moral judgments about all other sorts of things. Whereas before, you'd have we're just going to interpret the contract. We're not going to make any real judgment about rights or wrongs and fairness and all these kind of things. Now, I think they've opened Pandora's box, not just in a political sphere. They, they also now have to start dealing with things like, well, at what point does a contract become too unfair to be enforceable? We already ha- obviously have authorities along those lines, but I think you know principles of good faith, all of those sorts of things. If you're a Supreme Court that is going to start being the moral arbiter of commercial dealings, you have to, of, of all dealings because of the rule of law, then you have to start stepping in and making moral judgments about things. And that, that's tricky. It's tricky, tricky stuff. As to um, the concurrent delay point, and there, we can do a whole other thing about, um, about concurrent delay. But the thing that we often miss as c- construction lawyers is that extension of time 
is generally dealt with by the extension of time mechanisms under the contract. So, so the principle would be that if you uh, have a relevant event that causes you delay, even if that's an act of prevention, you get your extension of time. That's the point of the extension of time mechanism. Now, people have lost this in amongst the debate about concurrent delay, but the bottom line is the contract says if event A causes delay, then you get an extension of time for that period of time. And that is done on a, depending on what the wording of the contract is, if it is a concurrent delay, it is an effective cause of delay as a matter of principle. You don't have to pass the but for test, you don't have to pass it at anything. You just say, this was an effective delay for eight weeks and therefore you get eight weeks extension of time. Money is different. If you want your entitlement to money, you have to satisfy the but for test. So in those circumstances, you look at the act of prevention, you say, ah, but for my eight weeks of delay, there's another concurrent delay of equal effectiveness that's there and you would have spent that money anyway, so you don't get your money. That's the way it should work. Equally, if there's an eight week delay caused by the employer, but only a four week delay caused by something the contractor has done, you can show that but for the eight week delay, you still would have been in four weeks delay. Your only entitlement should be the difference, the but for test. But we never, ever apply that. It's ne never discussed, it's not properly debated. When we do a delay analysis, in effect, we should be doing two analyses. We should be doing uh, what is the critical delay for extension of time and what is the but for position taking out the relevant event? When would the contractor have completed the works but for it? And your entitlement to prolongation costs should only be that but for position. But we don't do it because either we're too lazy, it's too difficult, whatever it might be, or the common acceptance that time is equal to money. And that just doesn't doesn't happen. So we have to be very careful about those sorts of issues. I, I don't know if that's answered your question at all, but but for test only applies when you're claiming your sort of damages for breach of contract, not extensions of time under an extension time mechanism. That's really helpful. Thank you, Tom. Tom, I think we've already uh, stumbled upon uh, another podcast. Yes, uh, I, lo topic. Oh, I love that one. I do love that. <laughs> Uh, then I get into trouble um, with uh, with John Marin because he's he's written the sort of seminal paper on it, and I I don't agree with him. But um. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's just there are a number of issues which are perennial issues. They just they never go away. It doesn't how hard you you can have these judgments which seem to clarify everything. No, <laughs> we're still we're still fighting about it. Um, yeah. Listen, Tom, it's been uh, fascinating to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time.